You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right. Good morning, New Heights. Everybody can make your way to... Oh, somebody said, hey. Oh, hey. How are you? Like a hey. I get a hey, Jason. That makes me feel good this morning. Uh, Very glad to be here. Uh, Thankful for the opportunity to preach. Today's sermon is going to be in Psalm... 125. It'll be available on the screen, but if you have your Bible with you and you'd like to turn there, uh, feel free to do so. It's going to be Psalm 125. And probably depending on the version that you have, you may see something like uh, this with it, titled to the song, called The Lord Surrounds His People, A Song of Ascents. So you don't have to stand or anything, but if you'd like to read with me from where you're, you're at, feel free to do so. We're going to start at verse 1. The Lord surrounds his people, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. We're going to work our way through these verses of Scripture. And instead of using uh, bulleted sermon points this morning, uh, I'm going to approach things a little bit differently. I have one point for the sermon. It's in the form of a statement. You can see it behind me. And it's for the sermon, but we're going to look at it in two parts. So here's what I want to say to you this morning from Psalm 125. We are safe in God because he is making all things new. Briefly want to recap uh, what we've been doing here at New Heights. Uh, The Advent Sermon Series for this year uh, has been in the Psalms, specifically the Songs of Ascent. And uh, Pastor Will gave a great illustration of it the the first week of the series, uh, describing what they were. Uh, So basically, they were the songs that the people would sing as they went up to the temple in Jerusalem for the variety of feasts. Uh, So these were psalms slash songs that people would sing. Uh, They were most likely arranged in exile, which I think gives an additional weight and a meaning to them. They're songs of longing. They're songs of expectation. So let's move into the first part of the sermon today. And that's the first two verses. We are safe in God. Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So you've probably heard this language before, Mount Zion. So Mount Zion is one of the mountains that surrounds Jerusalem, and it's often spoken of like in a prophetic sense, but also in a, in a poet, po, you know, poetic sense of by the people of Israel, like Zion, Jerusalem, it had this deep meaning, and it, it kind of became shorthand 
for the home, but also the hope of the Jewish people. So that matters a lot for people in exile. So especially after the exile, Zion, it kind of becomes a shorthand, like from where the people would be able to return and find God. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 31 kind of get at this idea. In Hebrews 12, 22 is the verse that was specifically referenced, but all in that chapter, you see this beautiful language and description, and it shows that we, the church, are Mount Zion. This is not just Old Testament imagery. We, the church, are Mount Zion. Zion is home. And that's such a powerful word for us, isn't it, as people? Home. If I would ask you this morning to think about home, you'd probably have all kinds of feelings. Nostalgic, joyful, sad, uh, a mixture of everything. But home evokes a powerful image in our mind. The best illustration I could come up for this point, and I mean that, I worked hard to find this illustration. <laughs> Not really. But it's a song that's uh, currently making the round on the Christmas playlist. Y'all ever heard of Michael Buble? Yeah, people heard of Michael Buble. So he has a sensual hit song called Home. You heard it before? So here, here's Michael Buble, okay? He's come and he's gone away in Paris and in Rome. What beautiful places to visit, right? But, but where does he want to be? The man just wants to go home. And that will be the end of that illustration because I gave it in the first service and Heather came up to me afterwards and says, no more Michael Buble in your sermon. <clears throat> but have you had this experience, like this longing for home? You want to go home. So Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is. Okay, I want to put the mindset of the people. Jerusalem is where the temple is, and the temple is where God is. And wherever God is, is home. Now, some of you are probably like, oh, that's a strange way to look at it, because it seems strange given what we know about God's transcendence, about God's immaterial nature, right? But I'm trying to, I want to put you in the mindset of what people were thinking about. To the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. And I want to make sure I say that very clearly because it's a theme. It's something I want to revisit later, this idea of temple and a place where heaven and earth come together. So I love the mountains. I know many of you do as well. Um, mountains represent strength. Would make I think mountains, if anybody needs any logo or branding ideas, mountains would make for a great logo if you, anybody's looking for that. Just a, a thought. I mean, mountains are strong. So one more point about the mountains, and I think it's one we in West Virginia can appreciate, and uh, we're going to put a picture up on the screen, and I'll explain it. And it's, actually, I'm not going to explain it. You can just kind of guess what this mysterious green dotted picture means. All right, so there's a serious point. In ancient times, like being in a city that was protected by mountains meant safety. 
It meant security. Like, it was protection from foreign invaders and, and enemy armies. Um, the high ground is important. Just ask Obi-Wan Kenobi. Let, let the reader understand. <laughs> so I think, so there's a more general example I think that everybody will get, and it's this picture. So I really need a laser pointer, don't I? So you see all those green dots? That's tornado activity. Uh, Benjamin was in here in the first service, so I couldn't exactly get fully into this. But I feel like I've had the conversation with Benjamin that we don't have to be afraid of tornadoes a whole, whole lot. So all that green is tornado activity. And do you see this dark spot kind of towards the East Coast? There's all this activity, and there's that dark spot where there's not a lot of tornado activity. That's us. That's West Virginia. Our mountains, and this is exactly what I tell Benjamin, our mountains protect us, generally speaking, from tornadoes. They don't happen. Mountain Mama protects us. Like, I know you want to sing Country Roads. Nathan pointed out to me, uh, uh, he's probably in here somewhere. In the first service, how in the world did I not make the connection between Michael Buble wanting to go home and John Denver wanting to go home, right? Country Roads take me. A, a tremendous missed opportunity. But that is life. I am sinful, so we move on. <laughs> so here's the serious point. A, we can move on from the tornado picture. It's very cool, but we can move on. How about Jeremiah? So here's the thing. Like the mountains, when we... Now listen to me. Think about this. When we trust our God, we cannot be moved. Mount Zion is immovable. You've probably heard the imagery of the verse I'm about to read, but you can see it here. Jeremiah 17, 7 through 8, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green. Like a tree planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. That's a beautiful image of the immovableness that we have in God. Now, there's another part of this verse, and it's the part that we're moving on to now, and I want to talk about it a little bit. It's, we need to talk about trust, and we need to talk about God's faithfulness. All right, now it's time for some... Congregational participation. Does anyone, this is a safe place. It is, it's a safe place. Does anyone in the room have trust issues? You can raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Anyone in the room have trust issues? All right, let's try it another way. Let's try it another way. It's early, I know. Point to the person in your life that you love that has the trust issues. Oh, there we go. Everybody is pointing. Heather pointed at me earlier in the 9 o'clock service. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> trust. It's okay. This is a place of, I, I would say it's a place of no judgment, but it's a, there will be a little judgment, but it's okay because we're all friends, right? We all love each other. I have trust issues. I do. So here's the thing. I want to talk about trust because we're told to trust in the Lord. And trust is an extension of faith, right? But then you're somebody like me that has trust issues. I have good news. Would you like some good news? Here's some good news. 
Faith is a gift from God. Did you know that? Faith is a gift from God. We really need to remember that. So uh, pistis, this Greek word, root word for faith, it has connotations of being persuaded or persuading. But we need to remember that faith is divine persuasion, God persuading and moving us. It was also a guarantee in antiquity, like a divine warranty. So faith is a gift from God, and we need to remember that. But I also want to engage with you on a human level this morning because we are exhorted as human beings to trust in the Lord. Trust is necessary to live a good life. It's necessary to be fully human, part of sanctification, I would even say. But trust trust is hard. Why? Oh, there are probably about a thousand reasons. And I get it. Listen, trust is very, very hard for me. Uh, I'm a very, those of you that know me well, know I'm a very realistic person. I have a skeptic, like I'm just skeptical by nature. And so I must warn you, or perhaps warn myself in the way of preaching, there's healthy skepticism can really degrade into cynicism, which is easier. The older I get, it seems like it, the easier it is to be. I'm spending some time here, but I think it's important. Why is that? So I think the longer you're around, the more disappointed you are by people. And I don't mean that in as a, like, uh, you know, like, I'm not going to, like, be down on all of humanity too bad. But y'all know what I'm talking about, right? What it's like to be disappointed by people. Even in church, it's easy to be disappointed, to be hurt by people. And once you lose that trust, it's hard to get it back, isn't it? Because we're afraid of being hurt again. We're afraid of trusting someone again. Takes a long time to build up, but once it's broke, it can be broken in a second. So, I want to give you just a, an encur- like a word of encouragement. So, honesty, like being realistic about things, and hope, which we're exhorted to here hope, trust, we're in the season of Advent, they are not opponents. You don't have to choose. You can have both. You can be an honest person, committed to the truth, but you can also be a hopeful person. And I think that's important in our walk of faith in our life. So faith is a gift from God, but I believe that we can engage in a few spiritual disciplines to strengthen our faith. Now, I mean this in the sense that the Apostle Peter does in 2 Peter 1 and 5, you know, he tells us to add to our faith virtue, virtue, knowledge, uh, knowledge, temperance, and so on and so forth. So we see some imperatives from Scripture, and I'm just going to go through them. We can choose to believe the best in others, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 7. We can choose to give thanks, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 gets at that. We can choose to live in gratitude that's not dependent on circumstances, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And we can choose to focus on the things which are good. Philippians 4 and 8. Did y'all notice all those Philippians Bible verses? I haven't paid attention in Bible study. 
I said in the first service, I said, I'm going to get some brownie points with my Bible study teacher for showing that I've been reading Philippians. So there it is. So they're all biblical imperatives. And it's okay to strive for them. Listen, you're not working for your salvation when you do this. You're living as a Christian. So take this tremendous gift of faith that God has given to you and run with it. Now, here's the thing. So we've been talking about trust, right? Now we've got to talk about God's faithfulness. Because here's the kicker on trust. Trust is only as good as the object that you have placed your trust in. So, my first car, I was broke. I, tr- I had my first car. I trusted that the brakes would work. I did. I trusted. I said, it's a car. The brakes will work. Friends, the brakes, in fact, did not work. My trust was misplaced. I didn't say this in the first service, but I used to, it had a carburetor. So I would turn the ignition off and the car would not quit running. My trust was misplaced. Do not trust in chariots, right? Maybe that's a Bible verse that would have come in handy when I had my car. So trust is only as good as the thing, the person, the object that you place your trust in, right? We've, uh, you, know, you can misplace your trust in something that can't bear the weight of it. Um, so that's why God's faithfulness is important. I was going to, Heather's not here now, she's teaching. She was here in the first service, so I couldn't say this, but a good way to sum up God's faithfulness is that God's never going to give you up and never going to let you down. (laughs) That doesn't need any explanation. You ready for something more serious? And this is a pretty profound statement, but it wasn't the mountains in the city of Jerusalem that protected the people, but it was the God of the mountains. We understand that. Psalm 62 and 2. God alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How about Psalm 56, 3 through 4? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Church, God is faithful. Here's the thing. You might have to wait. And guess what? Waiting is what Advent is all about. Anticipating the work of the Messiah. Waiting on God. Waiting is hard, which is why there are so many exhortations in Scripture towards patience and long-suffering. So then, church, here's where we have to say, like, in a place of waiting, we have to know that God is faithful. In the place of joy and happiness with songs and praises, and that is so much of life, we have to know that God is faithful. We have to say in the place of tears and suffering and heartache and longing that God is faithful. And as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we must say and remember that God is faithful. And to believe all this, it all comes back around, requires trust. And who does trust better than children? Luke 18, 17, Jesus, truly I say to you, whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
Now, y'all know I'm really leaning into the dad thing right now. It's my vocation. It's what I write about. Uh, it's what I'm interested in, I think about. So I, I can experience this. So Benjamin's my son, and he trusts me. It's unconditional. We used to play a game when he was little called, I called it fly. So I had a couch and a pile of pillows, and he was one. The pillows were, you could take care of a baby, right? So I had some pillows, and I'd pick Benjamin up, and like, you ready to fly, buddy? And I'd throw him through the air into the pile of pillows. And Heather absolutely hated the game fly, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But you know what he wanted to do every single time I tossed him through the air? We had taught him the sign language for more, and then he was little, but he said, more, more, I want to fly. I want to fly again, Dad. Here's the thing. He wanted to fly every single time. He trusts me. I was dead. I wasn't going to let him fall. So children trust in their relative innocence, also dependence. They trust with, like, all their heart. And um, we need to remember that. Because here's the thing. We talked a little bit about honesty earlier, and now we're talking about trust. When fear is absent from the equation, like when you trust and the truth is present, trust really flourishes, and it flows out of love. So Bailey was given the first part of the... Uh, men's Bible study yesterday morning. He said something that was good, so I'm just pretty much taking it from a sermon this morning, so thank you, Bailey, for your help. I didn't give you the credit, though, so that's okay. Uh, he was talking about the uh, importance of identity in Christ and how important that is. And it fits right along with what I'm saying because we find our identity in God, and we live and work from that place of love. That is profoundly different than living and working to try to find and earn and feel like we've deserved the love of God. It might seem like semantics to you, but you need to understand there's a profound difference. Benjamin is, is my son, and he's loved by me. Not because he's productive. And he's not. I didn't lean into this early because he was sitting there and he was cheering that he was mentioned. But he's not productive. No, he's not. <laughs> but I don't love him because he's productive or he lives up to all my expectations or any of this thing. He, I love him because he's my son. He knows that he is deeply rooted in my love because he is my son. Now listen, I know that there are people in this room right now, you're having a hard time tracking with what I'm saying because you have what I call father wounds or you didn't have this experience. And I get it. All this deep-rooted love that I'm talking about, I mean, it, it eludes me largely with my own father today. I get it. But here's the thing. And this is good news. And this is a truth that goes beyond you know, the idea of father wounds. I think that there are wounds and traumas and hurts that we will only have fully healed in the resurrection. And I believe that we will. I believe that God will do it. He will heal it, 
in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, on that day when all things are made new, I believe that he will. But we might have to wait. And waiting is what Advent is all about. So here's the final word that I want to say. As we lean, deep, as we lean into this deep, profound love of our Heavenly Father, when we know the Lord is with us, we have courage. And what a profound thing it is to be deeply rooted in the love of God. So think about the Apostle John. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of John. We joke about it. We laugh about it because he called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Like, he got to write it, so he bragged on himself. He's like, you know what? He thought a lot of Peter, but I was the disciple that Jesus really loved, right? We laugh at John for that, but can I give you an alternative take on it? I've said this before, probably, but I think that, uh, I think that John, the thing that he was, like, most proud of and that meant the most to him was that Jesus loved him very deeply, we are safe in God. Part two. Let's, let's look at the rest of the sentence. We are safe in God because he is making all things new. Three, four, and five. For the sept, uh, read this earlier again. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So how is it that we can know the deep love of God? How can we experience it? How can we know that God loves us? These are important questions. So these verses, especially three, starts the thought, point forward to a time when the Messiah will remove the scepter of wickedness so the righteous will not do wrong. We need God to deliver us from that. We need it. So I mentioned the relative innocence of childhood earlier, but here's the thing, and Genesis will show you this right very quickly. Sin is crouching at the door. We are beholden to sin and to unrighteousness. We need God to deliver us, and to do so, he must shine light into our darkness. So what, again, I want to place myself in the time of the psalmist writing, looking ahead in expectation. So what did the deliverance of verse 3 look like? How did God interact with a world that was hidden in darkness and corrupted by sin. It's the incarnation. It's the manger. Now, this is a riff off an old, I couldn't remember it earlier, it's an old Casting Crown song. Jesus, born among the animals, because there was no room for him in the end of the world he came to save. God came down to this fallen world he is Emmanuel, God with us. It's the incarnation, it's the manger, it's the cross, it's the tomb. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Hear the words now. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. 
He died on the cross in our place. He was the atonement for our sins. And if it's the manger and the incarnation and the cross and the tomb, it's also the resurrection because Jesus rose in power the third day, achieving the victory of God over death and sin and hell and the grave and the powers of darkness. Just like he told him in John 2, 2, 19, in the back half of the verse, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So this is the point I wanted to make earlier about the temple. So Paul was so focused on this point, the idea of, of, of temple, in his uh, early work of forming the church, Jew and Gentile. So Jesus has become our temple, the place where heaven and earth come together. We find our home. We find our rest in Jesus, our Messiah. He is the king of the world, and part of him being the kingdom, king of the world, uh, we live, and Will says this so often, in the now and the not yet. So part of being king of the world means he's launching a new world, and we get to be a part of it, because God is going to set the world right. But, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that big picture and the final movement of the sermon, but I want you to remember this right now. Big picture things, right? But this is about you. It's about me. It's about you. Now, salvation is authored and completed and finished by Jesus. We contribute nothing to our salvation. I don't mean it in that sense, but, but you yourself need to confess Jesus is the Lord and King of the world. You, I, individually need to be born again, the imagery that Jesus used. We all need a Savior. As God is making the world right, and we get that theme of Advent, you need to understand that you, I, we need to be made right ourselves. Don't let that be lost in what we're about to talk about. So here's a fun fact, and that's one y'all probably don't know about me. Unless you were at the first service and heard this identical sermon, then you do know about it. I was on a jury for a murder trial when I was 21 years old. Full jury, full deliberation, verdict, sentencing, everything. And I, I have a request, first of all. It won. It was a sober, serious experience, and I got to see everything about justice. But if you're here this morning, and you are the person that decides who gets picked for jury duty... Will you please leave me alone? I'm un- I haven't had to report, but I've been called up for federal jury duty again. Again. This is like my fourth or fifth time being called up for jury duty. So if that's you and you can impact that, please, please talk to me after the service. I don't want to be on jury duty no more. But I did, uh, I did get to uh, experience that. And he- here's a sober realization that I had. So I got to see a lot about justice, right? I got to see a lot about how justice worked. And justice was done, that the man was guilty, and a just sentence was rendered. But I don't remember anybody feeling good about it at the end of the jury, at the end of the deliberation. Like, I don't mean in the sense of, like, justice being done and a sentence imposed to a murder. It just didn't feel complete. Primarily, the reason was the victim of the murder was still deceased. 
family changed forever, still murdered. N.T. Wright calls justice a broken signpost. It points forward to a reality that we're going for in the not yet, the not yet. And we see it here in the now, but it's not complete and it's not perfect. Justice is important, but we're not there yet. It points us to what is to come, but justice often seems to elude us in, the, in this life. We wait for justice. We wait for it because Advent is all about waiting. And some of y'all are Disney people, so you may appreciate this analogy. There's a Disney movie called uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. Maybe some of you have seen it. There's a concept in it called Kumandra. And all the people of the movie, they want Kumandra. They all want to live together and get along. This is just as fun to say in the second service as it was the first. But Kumandra is elusive. Yeah, it is. We try to grasp it. We want everybody just to get along, to be good to each other. And it slips through our fingers. Kumandra eludes us. Justice often eludes us in this life. So here's the thing. Some of, some of us are hesitant to even talk about or indicate that we want justice to come upon wrongdoers. Like that last little bit of verse makes us a little bit interesting, or a little bit nervous. It's interesting. Here's the reason why. There's a clever saying I like that we uh, judge other people by their intentions or their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. So if you mess up, I'm like, man, you did the wrong thing. If I mess up, it's like, you know, I meant well. <laughs> My heart was in the right place. You know, justice for thee and grace for me. It's that kind of idea. And part of the complication is that we are often the wrongdoers ourselves. I don't mean in like the most heinous of acts, obviously. Like that's silly and it dilutes the, the conversation. But we sin far more often than we care to admit we fall short more often than we should. The wisest among us would even say that we are jacked up sinners, and it's a good word. We sin, and we fall short, and we need God's grace, and we need His justice, because here's the thing. Justice is about setting things right. Justice and judgment have to come together, and God has to set things right. He has to make things right. So friends, listen to me. It's okay. It's, 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 it's good, and it's okay to long for the good and the true and the right. And I'll even give you one more. As Christians, it's our obligation, it's our vocation to participate in this project of justice. We do so, and that looks all kinds of different ways. Listen, this is a, a, a relatively short sermon, and I'm not doing the, the I'm, not giving, I'm not giving justice to the topic of justice. Sorry, I laughed at that the first time. I did. I realized it in the first service and laughed just as much because I'm, well, that's, I am what I am. So here's the thing. We work for justice in the church. It's part of being in the church, and we do this by serving one another and serving others and not living for ourselves. So we in the church, we have a template for this, and we look forward. We live in the now, but we look forward to the not yet. Church, I want to close with this. 
because it's important. It's the same thing Mary declared when she gave her song of praise in Luke 1. You see, God in verse 51, scattering the proud, but in verse 50, extending mercy to those who fear him. So we as the people of God, we must believe and long for the day when God sets all things right. Because connect this back to earlier. Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he has redeemed the world, he is redeeming the world, and he will redeem the world from all the sin and the darkness that corrupts it. We need to remember this. We need to cling on to this. We need to, in our waiting, we need this hope. Because he's going to do it through the resurrection, the new heavens, and the new earth. God is going to put the world he made right. He's going to make all things new. And as a part of that, we are made new ourselves. So, church, we are safe in God because he is making all things new. Our security, our hope is found in the risen Jesus. And his resurrection even kills the power of death. Now listen to me. We still have tears right now. We still die. We need to understand that. But God promises that he will wipe away every tear from our eye. And in God's future, even death itself will die. And we, church, we will live again. Because the love of God is more powerful than death. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.